and where did you see your assaulter, Mr. Brummett? It was about dark, and we could see a day before reports were carried in the day of the boat. I saw it from about four children, and for about five seconds, the front part of the office was over. Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, last week, folks, I introduced you to the intriguing case of the 1966 Westall UFO case in the Melbourne area of Australia. Well, tonight, folks, we're going to finish off that episode, and you won't believe some of the claims that have come out of this over the years. But as is often the case, depending on which way you want to look at it, some people say that people make up things as they go and they extrapolate and they add on. And other people say that people are simply less afraid to come forward as time goes on. Now, imagine if you yourself was a school kid and basically told that you were either crazy, nuts, or just to shut the hell up and don't say anything about this again. I doubt that most people, at least in my generation, would have rushed around telling the whole world about it when your family and teachers and all of the trusted adults around you had basically told you to shut up and don't talk about it. So it is quite a fascinating case, and as always here on The Paranormal Sun, the whole aim of the program is that I present the cases to you and the information, and I leave the decision-making up to you yourself. So with that, folks, we will definitely be getting into the rest of that Westall UFO case. First and foremost, I would just like to give a shout out to you, each and every one of you out there in the world, around the world, listening to the program, whether it be in New Zealand, Australia, France, the UK, the US, India, China, Nepal, Bangladesh, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, or any of the many, many other places where you've all been listening. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. It really means the world to me. Again, that you take the time to listen to what I have to say. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. As always, if you'd like to reach out to me, if there's something you'd like me to cover or a question you might have, you can find the all of the social media sites and the webpage for The Paranormal Sun, the website. The easiest way is to either go on to Instagram and look in the profile, and there's a link there, or go and look in each show episode notes. And there's a link right at the top that says you can follow and support the program here. And then that will take you to a link tree setup and you can go all over and check out whatever you'd like. If you want to go and look at merchandise, if you want to go and follow us on any of the social media sites, if you want to send a donation, if you want to buy merchandise, that's the way to get to all of it. That's the easiest way, folks. Other ways to support the Paranormal Sun? Well, like, share, subscribe, and mainly let other people know. If there's other people who you think may be interested in the stuff that I cover with my tinfoil hat on out here in my 20-foot cargo container sitting out in um, in New Zealand, then by all means, let them know. And like I say, if there's something from your neck of the woods especially, if there's something from your area you'd like me to cover over, let me know, and I'll be happy to look into it for you. So for those of you who celebrate Easter, I hope you had a good Easter. I hope you had time with your family. I hope that you got to relax here at the Paranormal Sun. Really didn't get up to a whole lot here at Tower Studios. 
There gets to be a point in time in your life, if you don't have a lot of immediate family around or you don't have kids, you don't necessarily celebrate those holidays as much as you used to. And that's fine. I had a chance to relax and do a few other things. I've watched, caught up on a few movies that I wanted to see that I've had recorded sitting there. Yes, I'm still very old school. There are some things that I stream and watch on the download services, but there's still a lot of stuff on terrestrial cable that I'll record as it comes on, and then I'll sit down and watch it when I have a chance. I also enjoyed sitting there on opening day and watching some baseball. It's been great to see fans back in the stadiums in the U.S. I'm a baseball purist. I mean, there are some things that I do think are positive changes for the game, but things like making a pitcher face three batters or having a pitch clock and some of these other things they're talking about I guess I'm just a bit uh, old school, and I really don't see a lot of joy in it, but I know that they're trying to cater to a younger audience. But nonetheless, it was exciting to see some of those games. I'm a big St. Louis Cardinal fan. I always have been, and me and my dad were big Cardinal fans. And unfortunately for me, uh, I don't get to see them a whole lot every year. I might get to see them kind of between five and ten games. We only get the ESPN coverage here, so it just comes down to getting to check out whatever might be on ESPN and if they make it into the playoffs. So, yeah, I uh, haven't got to see a Cardinals game yet, but after the first game, the last two, they're back to their old ways. I think uh, today's scoreline when I saw it was 13-1 to or 12-1, to so I guess maybe it's better that I don't see it. And like I say, aside from that, just been catching up on a lot of stuff. There are some other things I've got to get off my duff and do. But there are things that I'm working on in the background, as always, on the program. One of the things I've been working through in the migration from Anchor over to Acast is that Acast allows hashtags, so you can search podcasts by certain subjects. And because Anchor didn't have this, I'm having to go through manually to each episode and add in these hashtags. And yes, it's easy to add some simple high-level ones, like let's say paranormal or UFO or cryptid, but... I like to be as authentic as I can with the program. I think you'll already know that. And so as I go through, I've been having to go and look through the show notes or maybe even listen to some of the episode and make sure that I'm adding appropriate hashtags, certain case names, etc. in there so that if people are searching for that particular case, they can find it. So that I'm slowly working my way through from the oldest episodes to the newest episodes. So I'll get through that when I can. I'm editing a few episodes that I've had in the editing can for far too long. Again, thanks to Scott at The Old 77, a very close friend of the show. And I've known Scott for many, many years. We go back a long way. Scott, thanks again for your help. And I'm just working my way through that. So I basically got to re-read a script. So I'm going through and slowly manually writing down everything that was said so I can go and record it. But I'll get there sooner or later. We'll have that episode up for you. In the near future, again, you're looking at another Pennsylvania episode of some sort next week. I'm not sure if it will be a solo show or if it will be with Nate. Nate will be on. It's just a matter of teeing up our recording time. So we've got at least two more Pennsylvania shows to go through. And then we'll see after that. But obviously, I've got this case for you tonight the Westall UFO case, and I've got quite a few awesome articles from the News of the Damned. 
So for those of you who don't know what the news of the damned is or are new to the program, well, I'm going to tell you now. There was a gentleman in the early 1900s in the U.S. named Charles Fort. And Charles Fort was one of the first people who started gathering a lot of this information that I cover over. Things like the paranormal and the unexplained, lights in the sky, sea serpents, ghost ships, strange things falling from the sky like red rain and black rain and purple hailstones and the like. And he started gathering all this onto note cards, and eventually he wrote a series of books where he laid out these strange cases from around the world, be they in magazines or periodicals or newspapers of the day. And he had his own commentary, but the main thing that Charles Fort was trying to do was very similar to what I do each week on The Paranormal Sun, which is get that out there for you to digest and you to make up your own mind. Because who knows, there may be someone out there who delves into some of this subject matter for the first time and finds an explanation that people have missed for 50 or 100 years or whatever else. So we always title the news segment on The Paranormal Sun, The News of the Damned, in homage to Charles Fort, because Charles Fort referred to any item that was excluded by science or ignored by mainstream science as damned data, therefore The News of the Damned. And as always, I've got an excellent series of articles for you on this program. So as I say, we've got a good spread of different articles on this episode. So let's get into it. The first one here is from ATI, which is all that's interesting.com. And this one is titled Rabbits Burrowing on a Remote Welsh Island Just Uncovered a Trove of Stone Age Artifacts. And this is from March 29th, and it was written by Marco Margaritov. Stockholm is producing some amazing historical finds. It seems we may have an early Bronze Age burial mound built over a Middle Stone Age hunter gatherer site. Says Stockholm Island typically allows a select number of visitors to spend the night but COVID-19 lockdowns have reduced its population to only two wardens and a bunch of rabbits. In a first-of-its-kind discovery this month, a herd of rabbits accidentally found a cache of 9,000-year-old stone and Bronze Age artifacts buried on the remote Welsh island of Skokholm. Sorry, I pronounced it wrong. It's Skokholm. I thought it was Stockholm, Sweden. Skokholm Island sits in the Celtic Sea to the west of mainland Wales and is two miles off of the Pembrokeshire coast. It is currently only inhabited by two wardens, seabird experts Richard Brown and Giselle Eagle, who made the startling discoveries. Well, that's a fitting name for a seabird expert is uh, Eagle. That's a good surname for it. According to The Guardian, Brown and Eagle were, make, were making their usual patrol of the area when they discovered an artifact at the entrance of a rabbit burrow right by the island's cottage. The discoveries were made at the same rabbit burrow, which was apparently dug into an ancient hunter-gatherer site. The warden sent pictures of the piece to experts on the mainland, who identified it as a Mesolithic tool. The tool was what researchers call a beveled pebble, and has since been estimated at around 6,000 to 9,000 years old. Experts believe it was used by Stone Age hunter-gatherers to craft boats out of seal hides, as well as to prepare foods like shellfish. According to Andrew David, an expert who examined the prehistoric tool virtually, Similar items have been found at coastal sites nearby, including Pembrokeshire and Cornwall, 
but this is a historic first for Skokholm Island. However, the discoveries didn't stop there. This particular tool is believed to have been used to prepare shellfish and bolster ancient watercrafts with animal skin. Indeed, just a day later, Brown and Eagle spotted a second round of items at the entrance to the same rabbit burrow, which included yet another Mesolithic-era stone tool and sizable pieces of pottery. The Wardens sent photos of these to the Curator of Prehistoric Archaeology at the National Museum of Wales, Jody Deacon. She identified the pottery pieces as relics from a 3,750-year-old burial urn from the Early Bronze Age. One particularly large fragment was found to have come from a rather thick pot. It was decorated with lined incisions, leading Deacon to conclude that it was likely used for cremation rituals. For Toby Driver, an archaeologist at the Royal Commission of Wales, the discoveries ultimately suggest that the island's cottage was built atop an ancient burial site, which itself was built on top of an even older site. Skokholm is producing some amazing historic finds, he said. It seems we have had an early Bronze Age burial mound built over a Middle Stone Age hunter-gatherer site. It's a sheltered spot where the island's cottage now stands and has clearly been settled for millennia. Finding prehistoric burial urns in Wales isn't all that unusual. Discovering them on Skokholm, meanwhile, or any of the other western Pembrokeshire islands, is unprecedented. Brown and Eagle, who moved to Skokholm Island in 2013, are helping to uncover more about the island's ancient past. While it's barely a mile long and half a mile across, Skokholm Island has a fascinating history. The name itself is Norse, given by the Vikings who settled there in the late 10th or early 11th century. Then Skokholm became a rabbit farm around the 15th century. In 2006, the Wildlife Trust of South and West Wales purchased the isle in order to conserve it as a national nature reserve. While it's typically open for a restricted number of visitors to spend the night, the coronavirus pandemic has left Brown and Eagle on their lonesome and documenting their observations on a blog. These miraculous discoveries might lend some credence to the age-old superstition that rabbits' feet bring luck. Experts are eager to find out for themselves, with a fresh, exhaustive study of Skokholm Island later this year. However, they will have to wait until pandemic lockdowns are lifted. So yeah, that's quite an interesting one. And again, folks, it just goes to show that all over the world, there are these sites that often lay undiscovered, or you might know that it's, say, a few hundred years old, and then later they find out it was built on a site that's thousands of years old. So very interesting, very fascinating. And I've always been a student of history. I always like to hear about these sorts of finds. It just goes to show, folks, that as King Solomon said, uh, to paraphrase, there's nothing new under the sun. In other words, people have settled most of these places that we live in now thousands of years ago. And yes, there are places that we may think are fairly new. But I, like I say, again, we oftentimes find out later that, oh, well, no, actually, that history goes back a lot longer than we thought. So interesting article there. And again, if it's something that you'd like to know more about, you can find the link in the show notes. Now, the next article here is an interesting little one that I saw thanks to a extended family member, someone who is basically my default mother. She posted it up on Facebook, and I thought it was quite interesting. So it's based here in New Zealand. It's from Rotorua, which is a bit of a tourist area, uh, which is in the central North Island, probably about four hours drive from me. And this comes from MSN.com. 
And this one is titled Awesome UFO Clouds Spotted Hovering Over Rotorua. So again, these will be those uh, hole punch clouds or venticular clouds. Sorry, not, uh, not the hole punch, the lenticular clouds. So it says a bunch of UFO shaped clouds are being spotted hovering above Rotorua. Several people have snapped photos of the peculiar looking clouds from Rotorua to Tongariro National Park. Kendra Brown noticed the formation floating over Tongariro National Park. She said the display was awesome and just kept getting bigger. According to EarthSky.org, the UFO clouds are a type of formation called lenticular clouds. Lenticular clouds are clouds that don't move and form mostly in the troposphere, which is the lowest layer of the Earth's atmosphere. The lens-shaped clouds, lenticular, typically form when stable warm air flows over a mountain or range of mountains. The tall standing Tongariro and Ruapehu likely providing the perfect environment for these clouds to appear. As the air flows over the peak, standing waves may form against the side of it. If the conditions are right and the temperatures within the wave drops to dew point, the point at which the condensation forms, moisture may condense into a lenticular cloud. If you see one, you better grab a picture quickly because they can vanish just as fast as they appear. As the moist air travels back down into the trough of the wave, the cloud can evaporate back into vapor. The clouds are rarely seen to form in flat, low-lying areas. It's not the first time lenticular clouds have graced the skies of Rotorua. A formation was spotted at sunset in July last year. Weatherwatch says these clouds are common in areas like Otago and Canterbury, where westerly quarter winds often sweep over mountain ranges in just the right way. Pilot Jeff Beckett noticed one while flying over Otago in August 2020. He said it was the most impressive cloud he had ever seen. Now, folks, there are several photos here, and I've seen several photos of these over the years. I've never looked at one of these clouds and said, oh, that's a UFO. But again, it's part of mainstream media's continuing saga of finding anything to blame UFOs on other than the unexplained. So some terrestrial explanation that's easy to come at hand, whether it be pink elephants and people getting drunk or clouds or the planet Venus. And again, folks, as I say often, I personally believe that anywhere between 95 and 98% of sightings have a rational explanation. But looking at something like this, it it's like looking at a puddle and saying, oh, somebody mistake that puddle for Lake Superior. It's just not possible to me. Maybe there are others that look more like UFOs, but in the many years that I've been doing this, I haven't seen a lot that actually look like a flying saucer or an alien craft. Secondly, if you live in these areas and you're used to seeing these clouds, why would you jump to the assertion to say, oh, that's a UFO, that's a flying saucer? I can get a tourist being there and seeing something strange and saying, oh, that's different. But oftentimes, after you've talked to the locals and said, hey, I've seen something strange in the sky, they would usually point you right. So again, interesting, and sorry for me to start going on a bit of a tirade. I, again, I just get so aggravated when I hear people constantly saying, Oh, well, anyone that looks in the sky and sees anything that's not a cloud or a meteor or a satellite is an idiot and they're either crazy or insane. And I'm sorry, that's just not the case. Or they're fabricating it. It must be a hoax. So, yeah, folks, interesting nonetheless. And there are some excellent photos of lenticular clouds here. So if you want to see them, make sure you follow the link in the article. Now on to our next article here, folks. And this one is titled... Video, Fossilized Bigfoot Thumb Found, and this is from Coast to Coast AM as well. Now, a person who is a good friend of the show 
is actually this person who's been on is in this Coast to Coast article. And I didn't realize it until just now. So, folks, uh, for those of you who don't know, Connor does a uh, Instagram page called Bigfoot Anonymous. And Connor is uh, an author and he's done a lot of investigation into these different things. And again, I'm just mind blown that this is Connor. So, Connor, uh, I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes as well to your Instagram page. And folks down the road, the plan is to have Connor on the program. So uh, this is quite an interesting one here. And it just says, A Bigfoot researcher in Florida found a curious object which he believes could be the fossilized thumb of a Sasquatch. Connor Flynn of the organization Bigfoot Anonymous made the strange discovery as he was looking around a creek in the community of Mariana and subsequently posted a video showcasing this oddity on his YouTube channel. It's definitely a hominid thumb bone, he postulated, arguing that the creature that once possessed it was much bigger than what I am. Based on his research, Flynn said, there was no hominid species other than Homo sapiens in Florida at any time. They just didn't evolve here. As such, he posits that the sizable bone had to come from a Sasquatch. With that in mind, he muses that if anyone is ever wondering why they never found any remains of Big Bigfoot, well, they did. And a fellow investigator standing alongside Flynn finishes his thought by saying, they just swept it under the rug. As one might imagine, not everyone is convinced that Flynn found the fossilized thumb of a Bigfoot, as skeptical observers have suggested that he probably found the remains of a more prosaic creature such as a bear. More supportive viewers have urged the Bigfoot researcher to have the object tested to see if his suspicions can be confirmed. That said, if there is an active cover-up aimed at keeping the remains of Bigfoot hidden from the public, one wonders if Flynn would be told the truth about the nature of the bone. Be that as it may, what's your take on the researcher's claim? So, very interesting, and Connor does have a video here on YouTube, and through the magic of editing, folks, I'm just going to stop and check it out and then come back to you with my thoughts. So, folks, for what it's worth, I've watched the minute-long video, and number one, the person that they posit is Connor is not Connor. It's the other investigator that's with him. Connor speaks near the end. I've had the pleasure of speaking with Connor, and the first person is not Connor. I was thinking, where'd this accent come from? Because Connor doesn't have that accent. Well, anyway, look, as far as I'm concerned, it's definitely a bone of some sort. And again, it's whether it's a thumb bone or something else, Connor would know much better than I would because this is something that he's spent a lot of time uh, investigating. Me, personally, I know a bone when I see one. Now, there are some things, like a thigh bone, obviously, you're not going to mistake that for something else. But thumb bones are not something I've dealt with. Uh, a lot of my personal hands-on anatomy has been to do in my years of being a butcher or cutting meat. And things like chickens and cows don't have thumb bones, so it's not something that I've got a lot of experience with. Nonetheless, folks, I would say definitely go over and check it out. As always, you be the judge. I'll have a link of Connor's Instagram page just under that. And hey, Connor, uh, congratulations for making it onto Coast to Coast. Quite interesting and a small world, man. So keep up the good work. And folks, I was just messaging Connor to say that I saw his article on Coast to Coast and how that was really awesome and well done. And Connor's got some stuff going on in the background, folks. I can't divulge because uh, it's a work in progress, but he's up to something that's pretty cool, I think. And if it does come to fruition, I'll make sure to break it here on the air and let you know because it's another awesome achievement. And if it comes to fruition, then, man, it'll be really awesome to have Connor 
be able to do what he's looking into doing. So I'll keep you posted, folks. Sorry to be so cryptic, but I can't break someone else's information, especially when it's kind of up in the air. I don't want to jinx it, and I don't want to announce something that one isn't complete, and two, it's someone else's information to be able to break. You know, I don't want to steal anyone's thunder. So on to the next one, folks, who's also from Coast to Coast AM. And this one says, Annual Canadian UFO Survey Finds Significant Increase in Sightings for 2020. A fascinating and exhaustive annual examination of UFO reports from Canada found that 2020 was a particularly active year for sightings, with a whopping 46% increase in cases, issued each year by ufologist Chris Rudkowski. The incredibly detailed survey calls case data from known and active investigators and researchers in Canada to provide a rather thorough picture of the past 12 months and when it comes to the puzzling phenomena. Remarkably, the project determined that there were a whopping 1,243 UFO sightings across Canada in 2020, making it the second biggest year in the sorry, second busiest year in the three-decade-long history of the survey. The robust number of reports marks a reassuring rebound from 2019's total, which was one of the lowest on record. As one may have surmised, the coronavirus pandemic is suspected of having played a hand in the dramatic increase in UFO reports. As the report explains, sightings surged significantly in the first quarter of 2020 and then again in the spring, as many residents were largely stuck inside their homes with little to do but look up at the sky and wonder when the slowly unfolding nightmare would end. Another possible factor in the uptick, the survey notes, is the emergence of the Starlink satellite constellations in the skies over Canada, as that controversial platform has been blamed for countless cases of misidentification from bewildered witnesses thinking they've seen a UFO. A feast of data for UFO enthusiasts, the report indicated that 60% of the sightings consisted of simple lights in the sky, while the remainder ran the gamut and included triangles, spheres, and boomerangs. After examining each of the cases collected over the past year, the survey posited that approximately 13% of the sightings could be classified as unexplained and includes an excellent appendix that details those high-quality reports. Additionally, it found that the UFO represents all age groups and racial origin and came from a variety of vocations including pilots, police officers, and other individuals with reasonably good observing capabilities and good judgment. Another thought-provoking observation offered by the report is that so-called close encounters with aliens constituted less than 1% of the sightings collected by the survey. Well, that's what you would expect, to be frank. While wild tales of unsettling abductions and meetings with beings from other worlds may captivate the public, the data produced by the survey reveals that such events are incredibly rare and that very few UFO cases involve anything other than distant objects seen in the sky. In light of this remarkable contrast, the report muses that speculation on what aliens may or may not be doing in our airspace seems almost completely unconnected to the question of what are actually being reported as UFOs. Regardless of what could be behind UFOs, the survey argued that the sheer number of sightings last year upends the notion in some quarters that reports of the phenomena are in decline or that the entire matter is just some passing fad. Taking the point further, it argues that the fact that hundreds of sightings from Canada alone continue to be reported year after year suggests a need for further examination of the phenomena by social, medical, and or physical scientists. It remains to be seen whether that will be the case. But if experts are looking for an incredibly honest and fair assessment of the situation, at least as far as Canada is concerned, 
the annual survey is a fantastic place to start. So there's a bit there, folks, to unpack. First and foremost, yeah, I fully agree. People have this idea that if you're going to fake a UFO sighting, well, you'll just say you saw lights in the sky. Well, that's not really the case because most hoaxers are in it for attention. You're not going to get a bunch of attention if you just say, well, I saw some lights in the sky because anyone could say it was airplanes or Chinese lanterns or anything else. The people who are hoaxing it, I would feel, would be going much more down the dramatic path of saying, I saw a flying saucer up close, I saw occupants, the occupants spoke to me or abducted me or something similar. If you really want to get a lot of attention, that stands out much more likely than just seeing some lights off in the distance. So yeah, to me, I'm not buying that either. And I think that was a really well-written little blurb there. And again, that's from Coast to Coast AM, and there will be a link in the show notes, of course. So the next one is an article in regards to something that I've been covering for a long time. And as I say, folks, here at the Paranormal Sun, within reason, we don't just set and forget. We don't just read a story once and then that's it. I'll always give you the background uh, so that you know what's going on. Now, for those of you who don't know, the infamous Forest Fen treasure so it was an art dealer who buried a treasure somewhere in the Rockies when he thought he was dying, uh, somewhere over a million dollars worth of gold and different artifacts, different treasures. He put it in a bronze chest and buried it in the Rocky Mountains. Now, Forrest Fenn has passed away. It is believed that this treasure was discovered late last year, uh, sometime late last year. I covered that extensively. But that's to give you a bit of a background. Now, one of the articles I've done in the past is about a gentleman who decided it was a good idea to go digging up bodies on uh, an area of Yellowstone that is still controlled by the U.S. Army, a former cemetery of, you know, dead soldiers, probably from the 1800s off the top of my head, uh, you know, frontier days. But anyway, uh, this is a follow-up to that article. And the article basically says it all in the byline. And again, this is from Coast to Coast AM. And this one says, Fen Treasure Hunter sentenced to six months in prison for Yellowstone Dig. And I'm happy to hear it, to tell you the truth. And this was uh, in coasttocoastam.com as well. It says, Utah man busted for illegally digging at Yellowstone National Park in search of the Fen Treasure has been sentenced to six months in federal prison in order to pay a rather hefty fine for the series of ill-conceived excavations. According to a press release from the Department of Justice, back in late 2019 and 2020, authorities caught Roderick Dow Craythorn shoveling holes, such as the one seen above, so there's a photo here, throughout a cemetery located on a former U.S. Army fort situated within the National Park. A subsequent investigation found that he was responsible for a staggering 17 sites of illegal excavation, including damage to a historic grave. Craythorn's reasoning for the illegal dig was that he was looking for a cache of riches that had been hidden somewhere in the Rocky Mountains by eccentric art dealer Forrest Fenn. Suspecting that the treasure was located somewhere in the cemetery, he set about digging, but ultimately only wound up unearthing a sizable amount of trouble. Charged with past, this past September with excavating or trafficking in archaeological resources, an injury or depredation to U.S. property. Craythorn pleaded guilty to the crime earlier this year, and this week finally learned his fate. A federal judge overseeing the case sentenced the treasure hunter to six months in prison, as well as six months of home detention. Upon completion, Craythorn will also be subject to two years of supervised release and must pay a whopping $31,566 in restitution. 
Remarkably, United States Attorney Bob Murray noted that the punishment is inordinately harsh for such a transgression as it is a crime that a sentence of imprisonment is rarely imposed. However, he argued that in this instance, Craythorn deserves time in federal prison no matter the length, likely due to the extreme nature of his treasure hunt. To that end, the superintendent of the park, Cam Scholey, described the case as the most significant investigation of damage to archaeological resources in Yellowstone National Park's recent history. Meanwhile, Yellowstone National Park Chief Ranger Sarah Davis mused that this is an example of a highly egregious resource violation stemming from the Forest Bend treasure hunt saga. In light of the Craythorn case, as well as other incidents alluded to by Davis, one imagines that the park is quite pleased that the riches were recovered last June and that the site will likely no longer have to deal with ill-conceived or outright illegal attempts to find it by visitors. For his part, Craythorn was apologetic for the caper that is sending him to prison. Reportedly saying in a statement released by his attorney to the National Park Service, the, p the people of the U.S. and my family, I am truly sorry. I was motivated by the thrill of possibly finding a treasure, and my obsession clouded my judgment. After my time in prison, I intend to make full restitution. I can only hope that my case will serve as a reminder to people that we should re respect national parks and the laws that were enacted to protect them. One can only imagine how Craythorn must feel, having gone from thinking he was about to find the elusive Fen riches to now heading off to prison and having to fork over a small fortune of his own. And as I say, folks, well done. Look, I am quite enamored by ancient and lost treasure myself. But the bottom line is we can't go around to historic sites and go tearing them up thinking, oh, there's hidden treasure there. And again, this was a modern day man who had hidden this treasure. It's not like you're grave robbing or looking for something from the past. I highly doubt that Forrest Fenn was going to be so stupid as to go and dig up one of these graves himself to bury the treasure in it. It just doesn't make sense. Why would he risk imprisonment and everything else? It just doesn't make any sense to me. We can't have people going and digging up the Washington Monument or blowing up the arches in St. Louis to look for treasure. I mean, I'm really glad that this person has at least gotten some jail sentence and he's going to pay for having, to for having destroyed and desecrated these tombs. So, like I say, as far as I'm concerned, well done. And I'm glad to see on some matters the justice system does work. So I've got two more articles to go, folks. It was just one of those weeks where I just kept finding excellent articles. So a bit longer than normal, I know that. And the first one here is from All That's Interesting as well. And this one says, Scientists find a 20,000-year-old link between Brazil's indigenous people and ancient Australians. And this was from Kalina Fraga. And this is from April the 2nd. It says, Researchers guess the ancient people crossing the Bering Land Strait from Asia brought the Australian DNA with them. Deep in the genetic codes of indigenous people in South America, researchers have made a startling discovery. Several tribes carry a piece of ancient Australian DNA. Researchers first noted the astonishing link back in 2015. I hadn't heard about this. But a new study from the University of Sao Paulo has confirmed that Australian DNA is even more widespread in indigenous South Americans than originally thought. Our results showed that Australasian genetic signal previously described as exclusive to Amazonian groups, was also identified in the Pacific coastal population, noted the study's senior researcher, Professor Tabitha, or, sorry, Tabitha Hunemeyer, along with co-led co researcher and doctoral student Marcos Aruo Casto e Silva, 
Honemeyer and their team set out to build upon the original 2015 study and found a link between the people of Australasia, which includes indigenous Australians and Melanesians, or people from islands in the Oceanic region, and two tribes in Brazil, the, Karata the Karatana and Suri people. The researchers had a feeling that the link was just the tip of the iceberg. They were right. The Australasian-Native American connection persists as one of the most intriguing and poorly understood events in human history, the researchers wrote. The shared genetic marker between Australasian and South American tribes was dubbed the Y-signal for Yipikura, so if I pronounce that wrong, sorry, but that's quite a word I've never seen, which is an indigenous word from Brazil's Tupi people that means ancestor. This year, the University of Sao Paulo began the search for the Y-signal within a larger set of genetic data from 383 indigenous people in South America. They consequently found the Y-signal in the, Karatini, the, the Karatiana and Suri people and also in several other tribes, including the Chautuna people of Peru and Guarani Kayakawa and Zivante people of Brazil. The Guriani the Kiwawi people live in the center west of Brazil. The Zivante live near the center of the country. These results prove that the Y signal was indeed more widespread within South America than originally thought. Genetics is an ally to unravel unrecorded histories and populations, said Meyer and Casto e Silva, noting that the waves of European colonization has obscured indigenous history. So how did people from Australasia get to South America in the first place? The researchers theorized some 20,000 years ago, the ancient people who crossed the Bering Land Bridge between Asia and North America carried Australasian DNA with them. They likely started from Southeast Asia, moved north, and then mixed with ancient Siberia, Siberian and Beringian people. It is as if these genes had hitched a ride on the first American genomes, Hunemeyer and Castro e Silva said. From there, these ancient people would have made the long trek across the Bering Land Bridge. These first settlers then began to populate the Pacific coast, stretching down from Alaska to southern Chile. Hunemeyer and Castro y Silva suspect that they settled along the coast due to their subsequent strategies and other cultural aspects adapted to life by the sea. Then a second wave of people moved further inland. In this context, the expansion to the Amazon, passing through the northern Andes, would have been a secondary movement, the researchers explained. But there's one more mystery in the study that hasn't been solved. Although researchers found the Y signal in South American tribes, it's yet to be found in North American indigenous people. If ancient Australasians crossed the Bering Land Bridge and then moved south, wouldn't they have left genetic evidence along the Pacific coast of North America as well? The researchers have a few theories as to why not. First, it's possible that the ancient people stuck to the coast and moved quickly leaving no genetic markers behind. But it's also possible that they settled, lived, and thrived along the coast until the Europeans arrived. In this scenario, colonization might have completely wiped out any Y signals in North American indigenous tribes. For now, there's still more research to be done on this groundbreaking genetic connection. Unemeyer and Aruhu Castro de Silva's findings have added valuable insight into how ancient people moved but some scientists would like to dig deeper into the presence of the Y-signal. The population Y-signal is a puzzle, said David Meltzer, an archaeologist at Southern Methodist University who's co-authored the 2015 study, but this is an interesting piece to add to it. Now, folks, uh, yeah, and 
they're scientists and they've got their opinions. But there's another also very easy explanation to as why you would not have that Y marker in North American Indians if they traveled there directly via the sea. Now, I know it's something that not everyone agrees with, but many people have said, and I fully agree with them, including Thor Heyerdahl and Graham Hancock and many others, we need to stop treating oceans as barriers and look at them as highways. I mean, Polynesians explored the entire South Pacific Basin, which is an area much larger than Europe and the Americas. They traveled this entire area by canoe thousands of years ago, and it's proven. So who's to say that 20,000 years ago or longer, people couldn't have traveled at sea? It's just, again, it's one of those things, well, where we don't believe in that, or history doesn't say that, or we don't have proof. And so many times in my life I've heard this, and then later on, proof is found. So it's all well and good that you want to make sure that you're right and you want to take your time to get things right. But I hear many more astounding claims from science, like we know exactly what a planet's like thousands of light years away, and yet this is impossible that people traveled on the ocean years ago. And again, folks, I've got a much different thought on the world in, in, in large than the average person on the street. I believe that people have been moving and settling all over this world for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, and that mankind and antiquity go back far further than the average person may think. So I've got no issue thinking that people could have been traveling the seas 20,000 years ago. I'm sure they'll be traveling it in 20,000 years, and probably in 20,000 years if we haven't wiped ourselves out as a species. Our far distant prodigy in the future will be looking back and going, oh, there's no way that people had airplanes and computers and everything else 20,000 years ago. There's no proof of it. We don't have any proof. So we'll see. But again, it's just one of those things that I find fascinating. And I love hearing about articles like this that slowly start moving that clock back further and further in time. So again, go over and check that out. If you'd like to check out the article, there's a link in the show notes. So folks, I've got one article left here and I had to cover this. I only saw this while I was doing the show, but I couldn't leave it off. So this one is for chapter president and field correspondent in New York, Skinwalker Ranch on Instagram, because it's got to do with the Skinwalker case. So this one is from abc4.com, which is a ABC station, and it's from Utah. And it says, alleged UFO sighting at Skinwalker Ranch, Brandon Fugel's eyewitness account on Jessup's journal. So this was just posted a couple days ago. And it's from Douglas Jessup. So Douglas Jessup's Utah success stories, ABC4 News, you went to base in Utah. There are some things that can't be explained. In this episode of Utah success stories, you'll see a preview of a nearly 30 minute interview with the owner of a supposedly cursed land in Utah, Skinwalker Ranch. That is the subject of a History Channel TV series. Legend has it that supernatural activities occur on a piece of land surrounded by the Ute Indian Reservation in the Uinta Basin of Utah. Brandon Fugel bought the land five years ago and brought, it, brought in a team of scientists to see if the legends were true. What's the thing that he now knows that he didn't know before, the, before that surprises him the most? Fugel replied, I bought the ranch as a skeptic, as a healthy skeptic. I had never seen a UFO, a ghost, or an orb, or anything of that sort in my life and I disclosed that to the previous owner. Fugel claims that he and his team have experienced unexplained phenomena. 
I was surprised at how open he was. As he told me, those first six months of owning it, I really saw nothing myself that would lead me to believe that there was anything unusual. Well, that all changed. I had with multiple witnesses with me on an occasion when we saw what can only be described as an unidentified flying object, a craft 40, 50 foot long silver disc hovering right above the mesa, right in front of us. This wasn't just a blinking light in the sky or something that was a little bit ambiguous. This was a solid object that appeared out of nowhere, could move in the blink of an eye, and and over a 20-second period, perform maneuvers that I believe defy any propulsion physics that we're acquainted with. I asked him, so did you do one of those, did you see that? His reply, we were in shock. We were in complete shock. It caught us all off guard. To this day, I'm surprised. He continued, this 512-acre assemblage has become really the site on not only global interest, but in the most scientifically studied paranormal hotspot on the planet. The property is the subject of an investigative series on the History Channel called The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. What do you think? Watch The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, blah, 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 blah. Everything has a story. I strongly feel that stories have power. Chances are that if you are going through something, that someone else probably has as well. The shared experiences we humans have can help each other. I do apologize. That article is a bit of a mess. They've got links all spread throughout it, and that it's one of those that's not easy to read. But I did find another article that kind of goes off of that, and it's got a bit more information. And this one uh, is from the same guy from this Jessup's Journal, and it says, Owner of Alleged Paranormal Hotspot. And then it's got a bit more about what Brandon Fugel actually has to say. And this was posted on April 2nd. So it says, Legend has it the supernatural activities occur on a piece of land surrounded by the Utah Ute Reservation, as I say. Uh, Brandon Fugel described it this way. If you pull up Google Earth and you locate the exact center of the Uinta Basin, it happens to fall on a unique piece of property that I acquired roughly five years ago. Brandon Fugel bought the land five years ago and brought in a team of scientists to see if the legends were true. He continued telling me, this 512-acre assemblage has become really the site. Okay, I already read that. We had an extended conversation that comprises this nearly 30-minute episode of Jessup's Journal. Please note I did a separate Jessup's Journal on Brandon's business dealings. Okay, because this is a Utah-centric thing, uh, his business dealings would have some impact to a Utah news anchor. Brandon was very forthcoming in our interview. I asked him, okay, already, sorry, again, folks, it's just I'm skipping over the stuff I've already covered. Have you seen a UFO? Okay, so, sorry, folks, there's not a whole lot more to add here other than the link to this actual episode. So I will include both of these stories in the show notes. And sorry, there's a bit more smoke there than fire, and I'm sorry it's not better. But anyway, I'll be listening to that uh, interview. When I can. In fact, I might go and do it now while I'm having, uh, while I'm cooking dinner, and then I can come back and give you some insight on it when I get back. How's that? We'll, we'll see if I can get it working. And through the magic of editing, maybe I'll be able to give you some insight before we move on to the main topic of this episode. Well, folks, I'm back. I had a good dinner, it was nice. Uh, and while I was prepping dinner, I went through and listened to this interview with Brandon Fugel. So it was a half an hour. And for those of you who have been following the Skinwalker case closely, for those of you who have watched the TV program, 
You probably want to learn a whole lot more by listening to this, but to me it was worth it anyway. I mean, one of the main questions they've asked him that I personally have wondered about, uh, when I was a boy, as I said, my stepfather was a devout Mormon, I was baptized as a Mormon, and I went to Mormon church. Now, the reason that I asked that is, I kind of figured Brandon being from Utah, and some of the other things I'd seen on the show, that he was a Mormon. And indeed, uh, Brendan is a member of the LDS. And so I'm not casting any judgment. I was just curious as to how Brendan's faith tied into the idea of the ranch and interdimensional visitors or travelers, UFOs, and some of these other phenomena. And Brendan did a very good job of answering it. Look, I'm not a practicing Mormon. I haven't set foot in a Mormon church for 30 years, 30 plus years now. And no offense to anyone who is a Mormon. I've known lots of people who I get on well with who are Mormons and uh, members from the LDS, good people. It's just like anything. Uh, me personally, it just, no offense to the LDS or anyone else. It's just, I'm, it's not my cup of tea to go to church every Saturday or Sunday, whatever the case may be. It's just not me. But that doesn't mean that I have any problem with people who want to go to church or mosque or temple or whatever else you want to say, synagogue, whatever other potential things there are out there. That's each and every person's choice. Now, Brandon, however, did a very good job of answering the question, which is basically saying that he personally was brought up to believe that there were alternate worlds all around us and possibly alternate dimensions and things like that. And it's just a matter that you had to take it on faith as opposed to having proof. I think he did a very good job in the interview. I enjoyed the interview. Some of it was a bit dry and slow for me, and I thought, oh, I hope there's more to it. But the last 10 minutes or 15 minutes or so, it really got going pretty well. He answered some of the questions about how he bought the ranch, like how he even knew it was for sale. Uh, the answer is it wasn't for sale. Brandon basically approached Robert Bigelow. And in his mind, the way that Brandon looks at it is that he looks at himself as the steward of the ranch or the caretaker, so to speak, rather than actually owning it was an interesting interview, as I say, and from what I'd seen on the TV show, but again, it's always, it's TV, you know, they edit things out and everything else, but I didn't think Brendan was a bad guy, I think he's the type of guy, you know, I always thought he was the type of guy that you could sit down and have a conversation with, without him pulling elitism, or, you know, rubbing his money in your face, or anything else, and the podcast that I listened to just went to basically confirm that, uh, in, in my mind anyway. Uh, you know, he was saying that he was very fortunate that he was in a position that he could acquire the ranch. And again, you know, he answered some other questions. There's no smoking gun there. There's nothing there that's going to blow you away if you're looking for something really super in-depth or some secret answer to things. But I thought it was good. I thought it was worth listening to, especially the last half or so of the interview. And like I said, he, he answered some questions, some things that I didn't know. For example, he said that uh, the History Channel approached him for over a year, trying to get the rights to do the the program, and he wasn't interested, and he basically had his gatekeepers keep them at bay. And in the end, he only did it under very specific circumstances, and one of his caveats was that he didn't want to be known. He wanted to just be able to basically be in the background, because very similar to myself on The Paranormal Sun, Brandon doesn't think the story is about Brandon. The story is about what goes on on the ranch. And honest to God, folks, that's how I feel it is with this show for me personally, is that it's about me presenting these cases and interesting things to you. 
I'm just that conduit. Now, I enjoy doing what I'm doing, and I hope you find value in what I do. But what I'm saying is the story is not JT. The story is what JT presents. That's my personal humble opinion on it. And Brandon seems to be in that same boat. But he said in the end, the History Channel talked him into coming forward because they felt that it was part of his journey and also that it would be much more believable if it wasn't just some Mr. X that owned this property, but they actually had the owner involved in the program. And yeah, it was it was interesting, like I said. And another thing that's very good to know, folks, is that Brandon says nothing that happens on the show is contrived. He holds final cut rights. So for those of you who don't know what that means, he watches everything before it goes to air and edits out anything that he might think is dubious or over the top or planned. And again, I know it's one man's word and you can all sit there and say, oh, well, that doesn't prove anything. I get that. But I felt more at ease knowing because he seems to be a man of his word from everything I've seen. I was quite interested to see that he holds that right of final cut, which I think is excellent. I mean, as an artist, and I do think of myself as an artist now doing this program for you for over a year now, uh, doing this and the fortunate son. I really do think of myself as an artist and my art is important and I don't want someone coming in and adding in BS or something I didn't say or something I don't believe, things like that, uh, in an in an effort to uh, do whatever, increase listenership or whatever the case may be. And so I really respect the fact that Brandon had wanted that in his contract with the History Channel is that he has right to final cut. So yeah, it was an interesting little interview. It won't take much time out of your day, so I would suggest you go and find it. And again, I don't have a direct link in the show notes, but if you go and click on the link to the Brandon Fugel story, there's a link in there. And what I also did was I just Googled video, uh, Skinwalker Ranch, Brandon Fugel, something along those lines, and I had it come up in there so I could listen to it from the phone while I was preparing for dinner. So, folks, there's quite a long episode of the News of the Damned. I do apologize, but as I say, there was quite a good bit of news out there this week. And uh, one last plug here. I just wanted to say to Scott, Matt, and Dave at The Old 77, I also listened to one of your episodes while I was cooking dinner. And I'm way behind on all my podcast listening, folks. I'm miles behind on listening to everyone's programs. But it was good to listen to those guys because uh, they're like old friends. When I hear their voice, uh, I always have a good chuckle. I have a good smile. And, uh, you know, you guys always make me laugh. And I appreciate the support that you give my ventures. I really do. So thanks, everyone. I hope that you enjoyed this segment of the News of the Damned. And now we're going to get into the main topic of tonight's program, where we're going to wrap up the Westall 66 case, at least as best as I can for you, this fascinating UFO sighting in suburban Melbourne, Australia. Now last week on the program folks, I covered over the fascinating case of the Westall 1966 UFO sighting in suburban Melbourne, Australia. Now for those of you who need a bit of a refresher on that case, it was an instance of between one and three flying craft being seen by several hundred students and staff at the Westall School and also seen, it was found out later, by other school children and other people in and around this area of Clayton South, which is a suburb about 13 kilometers outside of 
the Melbourne CBD. Now, the year was 1966. Cold War fever was running high, and it's been explained away over the years many different ways. However, this case is fascinating, and it's the Australian case, probably out of all of them, that just won't die. It's got everything that you could want, short of people saying that they actually saw these creatures. Men in black, military involvement, government involvement, unmarked aircraft, touchdowns of craft, people seeing multiple craft, you name it. Disappearing children, disappearing families that moved out of town. It's a really interesting story. So that's it. Just to give you that very brief recap from last week, basically I had covered over what the core of the story is that several of these students had seen a UFO or UFOs touch down very close to the school. When I say very close, I mean within a few hundred yards or a few hundred meters. And it's a very interesting story, and we're going to get into it now, and it just gets more deeper and interesting as it goes on. Now, several other events, besides those that I've already covered, and I ended up by talking about the paddock. So the paddock or field where the UFO was claimed to have landed, and the gentleman went to go and see it, and he was told to go away by the military or Air Force people. He saw some technical-looking vans parked there. He saw people in uniform examining the circle with what appeared to be Geiger counters. And then when he came back to see it a few days later, after they had left, he found that the paddock had been completely burnt. Now, several other events are alleged to have been related to this fascinating affair. Some witnesses describe seeing a cow in the paddock where the UFO came down. It was alleged to have been in such a distressed state that it eventually had to be put down or shot, put out of its misery. There have been persistent stories that one schoolgirl, the first student to arrive at the landing site, was found to be in a dazed, trance-like state, as if she was in shock. There were unconfirmed rumors that this girl never fully recovered from this experience and spent some time in a hospital at Kew. The teacher who took photos of the site was allegedly told by the headmaster that if you want to keep on teaching, you have to keep your mouth shut, and we want the film. The film allegedly ended up in the hands of the RAAF, so remember again, folks, that's the Royal Australian Air Force, or the Australian Army. But predictably, there has been no confirmation of that detail. Even in the U.S., folks, they're not going to tell you if they actually seized this footage, and especially if there was anything on it. A woman claimed the UFO involved in the Westall School landing had hovered over her house, above the trees, before it landed behind the school. The UFO was allegedly above the trees for five to ten minutes before it landed. The woman claimed the UFO was trying to find a place to land. She states that she followed it, but that it started to get a bit spooky. She started to return home, but when she went back, she was allegedly turned away by the police. One source indicated that 200 to 300 kids raced down to the fence where the UFO had landed. There was some guy walking around in white overalls, and he was telling everyone to keep back, and another guy appeared, and he had on some sort of uniform. Both men had overalls. One was fully white, so he was dressed in full white overalls, and the other was wearing a dark uniform, but it had an emblem or a logo on it, according to the source. These men were normal-looking and seemed to be walking around the UFOs on the ground. One of the guys disappeared into the aircraft, the one on the ground. They didn't see where the other one went. The last they saw, he was around on the other side of the UFOs. The UFOs disappeared. It was alleged by at least one source that the UFO had sort of crash-landed, and there were three aircraft above it, 
hovering above. They were white, they didn't have wings, and they didn't have engines. All they did was hum. The humming got louder, and then they took off. Then within a few minutes, this flying saucer that was landed also took off. So that's quite interesting, folks. They're basically saying that there were two men, one in white overalls and one in what looked to be a military uniform, working in and around these craft, that one of the men got into one of the craft, and there were also three aircraft that were white, didn't have wings, and didn't have engines circling above. Now, that's all very interesting, and that's the first I had ever heard of that. Now, if that is the case, it definitely would add a string to the bow of experimental craft, because have you ever heard of a craft like that? Something only humming? I mean, even if it didn't have wings, a helicopter doesn't hum. There's little doubt that something of an extraordinary nature was seen over the Westall School area, and that at least one of these objects appears to have landed and apparently left behind some physical traces. A number of witnesses confirm the basic details. Other more exotic details vary in credibility, some seemingly complementing each other and some apparently contradicting the generally accepted story of events. Now again, as I said last week, witnesses have stated that within 20 to 30 minutes after the sightings, the military and the police were on the scene, as well as two separate fire brigades. So again, folks, if you're in the U.S., think of it as fire fire units from two separate towns turning up. What they're saying is it wasn't just one fire truck from Clayton South. There were at least two separate fire brigades that turned up. Military people showed up in those first 20 minutes. That's telling. This is a bit unlikely due to the lack of proximity of this area to military hangouts. But others argue they knew all about it and they were following these UFOs around. The uniforms described would seem to indicate that a few of these guys were employed by American services as well. Whoever they were, they weren't very nice. The only known photos of this exotic hardware were confiscated on the spot. The teacher had been taking a whole load of shots with her camera, and they took all of them, along with the camera itself. The Westall case is quite a sad tale in human terms, a result of the fierce suppression of the kids and being forced to not talk about it, and being told in no uncertain terms that they were all nuts and that they simply didn't see what they say they'd seen. Detentions were given, interrogations by creepy government suits, skilled in mental cruelty, all manner of real bullshit, inflicting a lot of long-lasting and very unnecessary emotional and societal pain and confusion. Everybody else was suppressed too, but most of the witnesses here were school children. It really gets your blood boiling. Like a lot of other people, I just shut up about it because of the ridicule, and it was everybody you know. You were a kid. You were making it up. So you just be quiet, and in your mind, you just think, I know what I saw, and no one's ever going to shake me from that. I know what I saw. Jeff Holland, who is a former student and an eyewitness. Shane Ryan, an English lecturer at the University of Canberra, which is in Australia, for those of you who don't know, interviewed dozens of witnesses for a book project of his. On the UFO, everyone seems to agree, Mr. Ryan says. It was a low-flying, silver-gray shining object, either of classical flying saucer shape or very close to it. A cup turned upside down on a saucer. The students were familiar with light aircraft because of the schools were very close to Morabin Airport. Although the UFO was of a similar size, everybody said straight away they knew it was not a plane, Mr. Ryan said, nor was it a weather balloon. The object was in view for up to 20 minutes, and many saw it descend. Most agree it landed behind the pine trees at the Grange Reserve. 
dozens of students ran across what was then an open paddock to the reserve to investigate, but the object had lifted off and vanished. Other details are sketchier. The UFO appears to have left a circle of scorched grass. Others say several circles were left in paddocks bordering Grange Reserve. Many witnesses, but not all, report seeing aircraft, up to five, trailing the UFO. Some say it made no sound. Others say it did make sounds. Many reported that the police, the Air Force, and military personnel inspected the site. Some, but not all, say the authorities burnt the site. Dan and Ong Journal, for which the story was front-page news two weeks in a row, reported that students and staff had been instructed to talk to no one about the incident. Nevertheless, that one teacher, Andrew Greenwood, gave the paper a detailed account. It was silvery gray and seemed to thicken at times, he said. The thickening was similar to when a disc is turned a little to show the underside. One of the closest witnesses was a boy whose family leased land at Grange Reserve for horses, Sean Matthews. He was not a student at Westall. He was on holidays and spending time on the land. I saw the thing come across the horizon and drop down behind the pine trees, he told the Sunday Age. I couldn't tell you what it was. It certainly wasn't a light aircraft or anything of the like. I saw the thing drop down behind the pine trees, and I saw it leave again. I couldn't tell you how long it was there for. It was such a long time ago. Mr. Matthews said the object went up and off very, very rapidly. I went over there was a circle in a clearing. It looked like it had been cooked or boiled, not burnt as I remember, he said. A heap of kids from Westall Primary and High School came charging through to see what had happened. Look at this, look at that, we saw it as well, that sort of thing. It was a bit of a talking point for a couple of days. Mr. Matthews said the object, about the size of two family cars, passed him at a distance of about four football fields. It was silvery, but it had a sort of purple hue to it, very bright, but not bright enough that you couldn't look at it, he said. I saw that it dropped down behind the trees, and I thought, hello, hang on. A minute or so later, it went straight up, just gone. He said police and other officials interviewed his mother, but he cannot remember them burning the landing site, as others have alleged, and he did not see any light aircraft trailing the object, as others had. The way this thing moved, there's no way it could have been a weather balloon or a light aircraft, he said. A helicopter? No way. No noise, wrong shape, and it didn't look like it. It came out of the distance, stopped, and then it just dropped down. It didn't just sort of cruise and then slightly descend at an angle. It just stopped, dropped, and then went straight up. Kevin Hurley was 21 at the time of the incident and rode his bike to the school from Murrumbina after being alerted to the UFO sighting. Mr. Hurley never saw a UFO, but he walked through the tall grass to the spot behind the trees where the students said the UFO touched down for a couple of minutes. I saw a whole lot of people in a group huddle. They were all looking at the ground and... And there in two-foot-high grass was a big, perfect circle of absolutely flattened and twisted grass, Mr. Hurley said. In that circle, there were three distinct impressions where the ground had been penetrated down to the dirt. Mr. Hurley returned to the site the next day with a group of friends, but he said it was cordoned off, and a military officer ordered him out of the area. Now here's another witness statement that was printed in the Clayton calendar, which was a school-created, student-created school news section. Now, this is a direct quote. I was in class when a disturbance occurred outside. I didn't take any notice, and when the bell went for morning recess, my classmates and I went to our lockers and then walked out into the yard. We noticed that all the girls who were doing physical education were gathered right down near the end of the playing field. Suddenly, the school came alive with excitement, 
and everybody began running down towards where the girls were. I was among that surging mob. I had seen something that looked very unusual in the sky. As I looked up, I saw a dazzling, silvery object flying around some pine trees, which grew on a ridge about a quarter of a mile directly behind the school. It then flew across some open paddocks, also behind the school, and returned to the pines. On the other side of the ridge there is a small field. The thing hovered over the pines and descended behind them and must have been directly over that field. I then lost sight of it because of the pine trees. As the thing was out of sight, I began to notice many private aircraft, mainly Cessna, flying towards the pines. It was then that the thing reappeared and rose to the level of the approaching aircraft. This enabled me to get a rough idea of its size. It was a silvery object as long as one of the Cessnas, but very thin. As the aircraft approached the thing, it tilted on about a 45 degree angle and started to move into the distance, gradually gaining height. The planes increased their speed and began to follow it, but the object streaked away, leaving the planes far, far behind. The planes turned back, but, were all, but we all stood, hoping it would return, but it didn't, and so we all went into school, 15 minutes late. After school, two friends and I went to the field where the object had descended. In a few minutes, we were crawling under a barbed wire fence which surrounds the field, at a height of about four feet. We waded through the waist-high grass, making for a gap in it. Suddenly, we were there. We found ourselves standing in a spot where the grass had been utterly crushed against the earth. It was an area of about 25 to 30 feet in diameter. Cows could not have done it because the fence was barbed, and also cows would have left a track through the grass. There were no tracks. The object that descended over the field, could it have done this? It all leads back to the same question. What was that object? Some people say it was a weather balloon. But do weather balloons go up and down quickly, crush grass, and fly around the skies faster than reasonably speedy aircraft? Otherwise, your guess is as good as mine. And there's a note here. It says, the author wishes to remain anonymous. I taught him some years ago and found him intelligent and well-balanced and certainly not given to making irresponsible statements. A.G.W. Now here's another witness account. It's unusual because the witness, wanting to be known as V, actually saw two craft land that day. In the incident, young V stood to the left close stood to the left close to the object, while three other students stood around it in close proximity to the second object. A teacher and at least a dozen other students crowded along the high fence to get a view. The two objects rose up from the grass and took off, one to the west, the other flew up and orbited a small plane before flying down to the southwest Grange Reserve area with students in pursuit. Now, there's a sketch of this, folks, and I will get the sketch up at some point, but it's basically what you would think of. It's two flying saucer-looking objects in a field. The UFOs were described as about 1.5 meters in height, so that's around 3 feet, a little more, and approximately 5.4 meters in width. So that's about 15 to 20 feet. They left behind two circles of burnt grass. Now what makes V's story more compelling is that this isn't the first time he claimed to have seen a craft like this. V went home for lunch straight after this extraordinary experience, which swept up the rest of the school. He explained that he didn't need to see any more on that day, the 6th of April 1966, because he had seen the exact same object a few years earlier. When, as a young child, he was trying to take a wooden pallet from a factory site near the Westall Grange area during the early hours of the morning, his escapade was interrupted when a UFO flew over him. 
It was the same looking object he would later see during daylight at Westall in 1966, along with many others in his school. But it was flying on edge. His appearance captured in a Polaroid photo taken near Balwyn four days before the Westall incident. There were other similar encounters during this period of the 1960s in the area around Westall and neighboring isolated suburbs of Melbourne, which in those days was the outer edge of the city. This area still had an isolated, almost country feel to it in 1966. The above-mentioned colored Polaroid photo was taken of a UFO allegedly seen over the Melbourne suburb of Baldwin at 2.21 p.m. on April 2, 1966, four days before the school landing. The photographer was a local engineering company businessman who was also a member of the Victorian Flying Saucer Research Society. He requested that his name not be used so he was referred to as James Brown in some accounts. Researchers state that he impresses as a well-credentialed person of wide business and consultancy experience who, through a range of extraordinary life experiences, has had a remarkable role in the complex and bizarre UFO mystery. The weather was warm and clear. Suddenly, the house garden lit up as if there had been a reflection from some huge mirror. Brown looked up and saw a light, shiny object coming towards him. He estimated its diameter at being around 20 feet to 35 feet. The object seemed to be about 150 feet in the air. It appeared to float down towards the witness. The strange object resembled a big mushroom with the stalk pointing towards the earth. It spun through a 180 degree angle on its vertical axis, then the witness photographed it. The object then turned slowly through another 180 degrees on its horizontal axis, bringing the stalk to face the businessman. From what seemed a virtual stationary position, it shot off northwards at great speed, seemingly accelerating to be hundreds of miles an hour in seconds. The witness ran and got a carpenter who was working on the house. They both heard a boom, similar to a sonic boom, a few seconds later. The VFSRS president, Peter Norris, knew the witness and interviewed him and the carpenter. The carpenter confirmed Brown's story, stating he and Brown he had Brown in sight when the photograph had been taken, so he watched Brown take this photo. The two had stood shoulder to shoulder as the Polaroid photo developed. Despite Brown's apparent inclination to keep the story quiet, the photo and the story was released to the media. The incident received national press and television coverage. Despite this, there was no public interest apparent from official organizations. VFSRS issued a statement sorry, issued a report on the photo which indicated that the Polaroid photo and an enlarged copy show no evidence of, a, of multiple exposure, montage, or any other form of tampering. The U.S. organization APRO had their photo consultant examine the photo as well. Dr. B.R. Frieden, professor of optical sciences at the University of Arizona, he reported finding a jagged line of discon discontinuity running along the center of the photo through the cloud field, which suggests that there are actually two separate photos joined together and re-photographed to make the one. APRO therefore regarded the photo as a possible hoax. The photo also apparently failed the GSW, Ground Saucer Watch Computer Enhancement Technique. Although aware of these results, Brown still maintains the photo as a genuine one. Given what has been learnt with regards to the circumstances of the photo incident, how it was witnessed, that it was a Polaroid photo, and that the GSW analysis technique has been criticized as sometimes being unreliable itself through questionable application and poor methodology, 
there's considerable evidence that the Baldwin photo may indeed be legitimate. Note that one interesting aspect of the photograph is a shading of pink discernible on the bottom part of the UFO. This appears to be a reflection of the pink tiles of the roof over which the UFO was apparently passing at the time the photograph was taken. Also note the fact that the Baldwin UFO was captured on the photo flying on edge, just as described by the Westall School Witness V's earlier UFO experience. Brown claims that while there was no public official interest in his photo when it became public, there was intense clandestine interest. He indicated that interest was directly attributed to the fact that his photo showed an object that was ostensibly identical to the Westall object observed four days later. Brown states that all hell broke loose when the photo was released to the media without his permission. He claims he came under intense scrutiny by the military and intelligence agents. He alleged that helicopters surveyed the area repeatedly and that he was interrogated by military, intelligence, and CSIRO officials on numerous occasions. Brown claims he was taken to a clandestine meeting attended by military, intelligence, and CSIRO representatives and at least two individuals noted for their high public profile on the UFO phenomena as advocates and witnesses. It was at this meeting he claims to have been told about an extraordinary film event at Dry Creek Tracking Station in Woomera during 1963. Brown also told this story to Leonard Stringfield. Now, for those of you who don't know, folks, Leonard Stringfield was one of the early investigators into this UFO topic in the 50s and 60s, and he did a lot of work in and around things like the Betty and Barney Hill case. Allegedly, a low-level, football-shaped UFO apparently caused an electrical outage and radar blot out at the station and at the Woomera rocket range. The UFO was allegedly witnessed by Australian scientists. Cameramen took 16,000 feet of color movie film of the UFO, which was ostensibly passed on to Washington, D.C. for further evaluation. While intriguing, of course, none of this information can be substantiated. To this day, residents and interested parties remain baffled by what took place that day, with conspiracy theories pointing to a government cover-up rather than extraterrestrial visits. Shane Ryan has spent the past 15 years searching for answers to what has become known as the Westall Incident. In those years, he has spoken with more than 400 people who claim to have witnessed the incident and subsequent stern visits from authorities. However, up until 2019, the Canberra-based researcher knew nothing about the seven pilots. Another piece of information has come through that somebody who lived locally to Westall at the time has said he knows personally one of the seven pilots who was up in the air from Murabin Airport and were witnesses to what happened that day, Mr. Ryan told 9.com.au. He knows personally the one pilot who got closest to the object and actually tried to chase it. This man is still alive and living in a nursing home. Mr. Ryan is in the process of getting in contact with the pilot in the hope he is willing to speak about what he saw. Mr. Ryan admits he is contacted regularly by strangers who claim to have information about the Westall incident. He said he investigates all the tips in an attempt to verify them. When I originally started my research, I thought I'd be able to crack this nut in a year or two years and get to the bottom of the mystery, he said. Part of that thinking is that it was this response by government authorities to the extent that it seems that there was, they must have some answers. But my feeling now is part of the reason for the cover-up or the shutdown was that there were no answers. Relatives from two former Department of Supply workers have been in touch to disclose possible links to Westall 
and crash investigators from the Department of Civil Aviation. This is little doubt. There is little doubt that controversy, intrigue, and bizarre elements swirl around the Westall saga. Extensive investigation and research continues into this remarkable case. The Victorian UFO Research Society investigated the incident. VU4 Secretary Tony Cook said Westall remained one of Australia's major unexplained UFO cases. Mr. Cook said the society's stance on the UFO was that there are people out there seeing unusual things in the sky at times and they can't be explained. But it's a very big leap to go from unexplained things in the sky to extraterrestrials. Which again, folks, if you've been listening to this show at all, you would know that that's my contention as well. Now, folks, I'm very pleased to have for you not just one, but two separate interview clips to play for you. I love playing these old clips because, again, it's great for you to be able to listen to what people actually found out in 1966. So this was 55 years ago, folks, and I wasn't even a gleam in my parents' eyes at that time. So it's great when you've got some actual recording. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a rundown on these clips before I play them. Now, for clip number one, please note that this audio recording and the same one referenced in the News.com AU article I was just reading and New York Post articles is not a recording of Dr. James McDonald, the American atmospheric physicist and UFO researcher discussing, discussing the 1966 Westall incident. Rather, it's an audio letter that was sent to McDonald by an Australian businessman living in Melbourne who had met and talked with Westall High science teacher and witness Andrew Greenwood. The audio letter is an account of Greenwood's description of what happened at Westall and was made apparently in mid-1966, and about one year before McDonald would visit Australia and personally interview Greenwood and other UFO incident witnesses. The audio letter is partly in response to an article that appeared in the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO Bulletin, about the Westall case, and the Melbourne businessman is attempting to clear up some of the details in that article that were not quite accurate for McDonald. So that's the first clip, folks. That's about 9 to 10 minutes. Then after that, you're going to hear a second clip. Now, folks, you should know here at the Paranormal Sun, I don't settle for bare bones of a case. So here in its entirety is the extremely rare recording of James McDonald interviewing Andrew Greenwood in 1967. You'll note that you can hear school children in the background. So you'll hear about a 10-minute clip, and then you'll have a little bit of a, I'll try and leave a little bit of a space so you can tell the difference between the two clips. And then the second one is about 20 minutes long, folks. Recently, in recent editions which have referred to certain sightings in Australia, I've detected uh, quite a bit of exaggeration and, and uh, a lot of uh, uh, misquoting. In the last uh, APAO bulletin, uh, which incidentally published my photograph, uh, round the wrong way, as a matter of fact, uh, there were several reports uh, emanating from Australia. I've got the APRO bulletin in front of me now. Uh, there was one particular report which emanated from the uh, Westall High School. I don't know whether you're familiar with this report, but the science master there, um, two other members of staff, and about 300 children watched a UFO um, maneuvering around over Westall and at the same time watched five aeroplanes from the local aero club uh, doing everything they could to intercept the UFO. Now, in the APRO bulletin, 
it's headed official squash school sighting. Well, it may be coincidence or one of these lucky things, but my brother-in-law uh, is on the committee of the Australian Light Cow Club, and the science master who uh, was one of the key witnesses in this sighting uh, is also in the Light Cow Club uh, as a member, and uh, I managed to arrange with my brother-in-law to get this particular chap to come over uh, to my house and discuss the sighting with me. It was very interesting indeed, and he read this report in APRO Bulletin and, and uh, said that uh, most of the um, so-called facts mentioned in it were incorrect. Um, there was no question of officials quashing the sighting uh, as it was put by APRO. Um, the person behind the uh, uh, sort of closed down on this particular sighting was the headmaster, uh, who was so scared or disturbed by the whole thing uh, he refused to go outside into the schoolyard, uh, even when told the object was in the sky. Uh, when the Air Force contacted the um, headmaster, he told them in his exact words, which were, uh, uh, go and jump in the lake. Now, this science master told me a great deal about this sighting. It was certainly a fascinating one. Uh, it was rather unfortunate that uh, the fact when they were sent over to... Uh, APRO were rather distorted, and this has led me to think at this stage anyway that uh, it may be that Carol Lawrenson hasn't uh, obtained the correct information from the Eastern States, as I felt quite sure that NICAP would wait until the CSIRO report came through. Uh, anyway, to go on with the starting, I think this is more interesting than worrying about the photographers uh, at this stage anyway. Um, Greenwood, and the name, that was the name of the science master, told me that uh, the UFO was first brought to his attention by a rather hysterical child who ran into his classroom and said there's a flying saucer outside. Anyway, he, he thought this child had uh, become deranged or something that was ill, and he didn't take immediate notice, but when the child insisted that this object was in the sky, he decided to go out and have a look for himself. He went out of the yard, or incidentally this occurred on the 7th of April, only a few days after I took that photograph. Uh, he went out into the yard and uh, he couldn't see anything, and he noticed some other children who had been in a physical education class outside, uh, down at the bottom of the schoolyard, uh, looking towards the uh, northeast. Anyway, he uh, ran over uh, to this group of children and there he saw the UFO for the first time. It was evidently hovering very closely to uh, the high-tension power lines which enter Melbourne from the Latrobe Valley and come through uh, Westall and Moorabbin, where the Aero Club is. He watched it there, and he said it was a bright silver object about the size of a car and resembled to him a bar just floating in the air, a sort of rod. I think... This was probably a disc seen from the edge. Anyway, it didn't rose up, and uh, at this point, he noticed a light plane, probably a Cessna or a Piper Cub, uh, moving in towards it. You know, it just sat there about a thousand feet up, and he said about two thousand feet from where he was standing. Uh, at this stage, he was joined by more children and the physical education teacher. 
to what it did. And then, evidently, the pilot of the first flight plane had radioed other planes in the air, and they all converged, that is, four others converged on the uh, disc or object. Then he said the most amazing flying he'd ever seen in his life uh, commenced in the sky. The planes were doing everything possible um, to approach this object, and he said how there wasn't an aerial collision or a serious accident, he'll never know. But uh, they were literally turning around in the sky, and every time they got very close to the object, it would slowly accelerate, and then, and then rapidly accelerate, and move away from them, and then stop. And then um, they would take off after it again, and uh, the same thing would happen, it would come back again. Anyway, this went on for 20 minutes, and by this time there was something like 350-odd people, children and staff members of the school, watching this scene. Then the thing just shot away, obviously, in his opinion, got sick of this uh, game of cat and mouse which was going on in the air. And uh, by this time, the, the headmaster had come out. Uh, he probably noticed that the thing had gone or somebody had told him so. And uh, the headmaster came out and, and demanded everybody's attention and told them to return to their classes at once, which they did. He then gave the school a lecture, I believe, and told the children that they'd be severely punished if they talked about this matter, and told the staff uh, that uh, they could lose their jobs if uh, they mentioned it at all. Uh, this, of course, appalled uh, Greenwood, who was uh, uh, rather upset at this. He's a very well-educated person. He's got about three university degrees. And up to the time of seeing this uh, UFO, he was a complete skeptic himself. He never even considered the possibility of their existence. And, of course, um, this reformation had taken place in these few minutes of his fighting, and uh, he was rather annoyed with the headmaster altogether. Uh, one of the amusing thing was that the headmaster did carry the force to jump in the lake when they rang later in the day. Anyway... Another strange thing which came out of this case was that uh, when he asked the physical education teacher uh, to describe what she had seen herself uh, in detail so that he could compare it with his own observations, she just wouldn't say anything. And when I mean she wouldn't say anything, she, she just wouldn't utter a word. And this rather puzzled him. Um, he doesn't think it had anything to do with the headmaster's idle threats, as nobody in the school took them very seriously. He also um, talked with one of the other uh, witnesses, uh, one of the older children who saw this object, and at first um, the girl concerned um, told him the full story and uh, very accurately described the object, and it matched his own uh, description very closely. But then half an hour later, when he asked her again, and incidentally she had not heard any of the threats uh, the headmaster had, uh, had made because she'd gone home to tell her mother. Uh, also the same thing happened. She wouldn't say anything. This is rather puzzling to Greenwood, and it's certainly puzzling to me. Anyway, that's the Westall sighting. I don't know whether you know about it. It wasn't published in any of the papers except for one very small local paper in a place called Dandenong uh, near Melbourne. 
it was a very good sighting indeed. The object, when compared with the aircraft, was about half the length of the Cessna. It was obviously a small object, and uh, according to Greenwood, was definitely under some form of intelligent and uh, recording next a, uh, a discussion with uh, Mr. Andrew Greenwood uh, in connection with the Westall sighting. So we'll just, uh, if you'll want to sit down here, and I'll sit over here. I need a little bit more light. That's a heck of a chair, but I guess we can sort of grade here. I've, uh, I've read uh, some of the material that uh, Paul and Peter have sent me, uh, so I know a bit about it, but I think it's well to just go. Uh, 
I, I finally picked up what they were looking at. Uh, was it quite small in size? Uh, it was. Well, when I said, well, the only thing I've got to compare it against is uh, later on there were some small aircraft, Cessna size aircraft. Uh, it was approximately two thirds the length of one of those. It's How far away were they? That makes the difference. Yes, of course it does. Now they were about. Uh, oh, when when they were there, when they were well, there, it was they, they were sort of circling it. They were. Uh, oh, so the absolute size is not. It is approximately two thirds plus or minus a bit of the half two thirds, more than half the size of one of these light aircraft. Okay. Uh, now it was just at any stage to me um, cigar shape, uh, cylindrical cigar shape, except on occasions it appeared to bulge in the middle. It's chain shape? Yes, chained in. This the best way I can describe this holder, I won't say saucer, I say plate. Hold the plate on edge and it looks straight across, mm -hmm. tip it slightly and you see it bulge oh. in the middle, in that type of effect. I can't say that's what was happening, of course, but that's, that's what it appeared to be. You didn't have a distinct impression of whether that was the cause. You just, uh, I didn't know whether that was the cause or whether something, whether it actually was bulging in the middle, top and bottom. Okay. But that's what it looked like. Right. How far away do you think it was at that time? Now, that's another point I have to think back on. Uh, I don't know if I've, ever, if I've ever given a distance before. If so, that's probably more accurate than anything I can think of now. Uh, all I can say is that there were, from where I was standing, it was about uh, 300 yards of pylons. So about, all going on for 1,000 yards at the furthest, I would say. The birds, um, more than a half, maybe half a mile. Maybe half a mile. Yeah. That would be uh, when it was at its furthest uh, distance from us. Okay. The closest it came would have been, I suppose, half that distance. Uh, right. What's the next point? So you uh, you saw it. There was it hovering motionless when you uh, saw well, it. Well, it, it did several things. It, it did hover at different times. It seemed to be able to accelerate and disappear out of sight, and then someone would see it uh, over in another part of the sky, and then through an arc of, I suppose, um, 20 or 30 degrees away from us. In other words, it moved considerable distance, very rapidly, and then it would move back again. Uh, yeah, as I mentioned, it came towards us. Not that we could see it actually coming towards us, but we could see that it was closer now than it was before. Mm -hmm. Uh, it did hover, as I mentioned. It could go up and down. As I, when it could move slowly, but generally it seemed to hover or move really fast. Uh, we did see it moving across slowly on a few occasions. One of the big points that um, I got out of this was the fact that it was on its own when we first saw it. And the next thing we noticed was the presence of one of these light planes. I say Cessna type, I don't know what it was exactly. Uh, one of the, uh, a light plane which approached it and then came to try and move around it. The object moved over to another part of the sky very rapidly. The plane followed it over, moved back again. It seemed to be playing a cat and mouse with the plane. 
then more than one plane, more than one plane arrived. Uh, at the end, I think it counted, there were five planes there. Although, as you probably heard, the Raven Airport denied the uh, presence of any planes. Or they actually denied there were any planes in the air. Which Is that the only possible airport, Moravian Airport? I think that it, it could be. Moravian is, is very close. It would be four, four or five miles away. And the next one where any, particularly five aircraft, I mean, obviously one black might take off from his back paddock or something, but uh, not five. And I, I really think it's the only airport that um, could be considered. And you haven't a clue as to why this, uh, why they would deny? Uh, particularly, it's rather silly they would deny it, in that if you ever go out near Moravan, there is never one spot during the day. I drive past there several times a day, uh, going back and forth between the two schools. Uh, I'm a different school now, I'm at Hagerby College. And there is never a time when there's not planes taking off and coming in. So I think it was rather a silly statement for them to make that at that particular time there were no planes in the sky. But, uh, yes, of course, it could be. Okay, that's, that's, it just stands in that status now, that there's no further clarification of those planes. No, they absolutely deny that there were no planes in the sky. We saw them all right, 300 of us. We did, oh, oh one thing I forgot to mention, at one stage, disappeared behind a tall row of pine trees, uh, and from we would it would appear that it, it went um, behind them reasonably close to these pine trees. Now I'm not just trying to think. I suppose they would be 600 yards, approximately, something like that. Mm -hmm. Approximately 600 yards from where we were, and we later went over. And another member of staff and myself walked over in that vicinity to have a look and see if we could see. Lots of the, the kids, of course, left the fence, which they were severely revealed at by the headmaster. But we uh, we went too. We, we tried to see what we could find. There were reports from the or several groups of the children later on that they'd seen one of these typical nests. But uh, I didn't see one myself. It would be the perfect area to, to see one in, lots of long grass. But I, I didn't see one myself, although I looked around for quite a while. Did that, uh, now, or the, the aircraft came, we had the aircraft uh, in there. What uh, did it, uh, did that process go on for many minutes? Well, I suppose if we count for 10 minutes from when it was first, it was first seen, uh, as I said, by this group of girls at a phys ed class who were on the oval. Now, of course, it could have been there before they noticed it. As I say, I couldn't even notice it myself for a while. So it was, until you, it's one of these things that once you see it, then you go on seeing it, you know what I mean? But uh, they're hard to pick up. I think it was just a, you know, the silvery color against the sky. And then uh, after you saw it, how, how long was it in sight? Now, 10 minutes there, and it disappeared. 25 minutes it was in sight for. Now, it went at the end of that 25 minutes, but it could have been there before that. These are all these figures, of course, are quite rough. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure exactly. Okay. And how did it disappear? Well, this is one thing we, we just don't know. It, 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 it vanished. 
all of a sudden, we, yeah. while you were all looking at it? No, it did one of these you know, sudden accelerations, and then nobody could pick it up again. It was gone. You did see it accelerate. It oh, yes. It yes. disappear in mid air. Oh, no, it didn't click out. You could see it accelerate. And it went off so fast, you didn't follow it. We couldn't follow it. That terminated. Were the and aircraft still there? Still. Yes, the aircraft was still there. I can't remember what happened to those. I know they were there then, but I just can't remember what happened to the aircraft. So we've got the, it was it was cigar shaped. Uh, what uh, ratio of uh, length to uh, width and so on? And uh, you know, find this ratio. What was it? Uh, like oh, it's a finger shape more than anything else. Mm -hmm. about the, the ratio of the thickness of the finger to the length of it. The middle finger, something like that. Something like four, five, and one. Something like that. Not ten, one. Like and it was a silvery gray. You say silvery, silvery gray. Silver, silver gray. Grayish cloud. That's right. Yeah. No sound. No. Nobody no, heard any no. sound. Now there were all sorts of, of reports of uh, different things. Uh, one girl said that she'd seen the thing on the ground, and it was, uh, uh, oh, you know. This sort of shape with little windows around it and all the rest of it, but um, I don't really know how much um, you can put in her story. There were, uh, there was a report of some sound from it, come to think of it, but only from one girl who, who was supposedly close to it. I heard nothing and there was no sound to hear when we were all standing in a large group watching it. But as I say, lots of them jumped the fence and went off after it. I only jumped, I only left the fence and went after it after it disappeared. Uh, you mean it went behind the grove of trees? It went behind the, this is before it disappeared. Yes, it, and that's it when they got close to it, allegedly? Well, this is supposedly when they got close to it, yes. What time was this recess? Oh, it started, we four yeah. 40 minute periods, plus, uh, when did we start? Started. That's right. Yes. I wondered where I was at. It had to be somewhere. It's 
the council all over the place. I've only ever seen the one in the Dandenong you know, Journal. Approximately nine o'clock. It's a little bit earlier, so it'd be um, ten fifteen or so. And recesses quarter of an hour. It'll be ten fifteen to or ten forty-five. Disappeared about five minutes before the end of recess. Were there any uh, uh, persons off the school grounds who uh, saw it? We never any heard any reports of this. This is one thing that. Uh, of us trying to see or find out about it. We never could find anything. How many teachers saw it all together? The phys ed teacher uh, says she saw something but won't say anything more. Mm -hmm. uh, the, yes, I think uh, Claude Miller, the senior English master. Claude, uh, C-L-A-U-D-E? -E. Yes, Miller. Miller, senior English master. Is he the one who went across the field? That's him? right, yes. He saw it in the air? Only the very last he came out just as it was going. The other one, Jeanette Muir, uh, his headmistress, he, she was there when it was very first seen. Right She's the, the one beginning. who said she uh, has climbed up a bit? Yes. Jeanette, G-E-N-A-T-T-E? Yes, that's right. Muir, M-U-I-R. And the, uh, well, this business about the head headmaster, is this a woman or a man? Man, man. Uh, what's his name? Frank Sambleby. S-A-M-B-L-E, B-L-E. S-A-M-B-L-E. B-L-E, B-L-E. Sambleby. 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 And he's the one who uh, seemed to be uh, uh, quite influenced by some pressures to keep things quiet, or was this his own? Well, I think it was probably whether or not he was influenced by some pressures or not. Uh, we know the Air Force came to the school. Uh, whether or not anything was said to him, I don't know, because of his own volition. Uh, he, I know he had a special assembly lunchtime because lots of the children were back late from leaping events and trying to look for it. Mm. And um, tell them a whole lot of rock the whole thing and be for some people who believe anything. Words to this effect. And, mm. uh, Was the Air Force in there before that recess? Oh, no, no, they didn't come for about two or three days. So that couldn't have been blamed on the, on the recess. Uh, on the Air Force. Oh, no, 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 I'm saying. He, he had no. a special assembly. Special at assembly at lunchtime. No, perhaps I'm going to correct that. He had an, at the assembly that we have, we have an assembly in the morning and afternoon. The assembly. He had a, a special little blurb. Spoke. He spoke about this particular incident. You said it was a lot of nonsense? Yes. I was accused of suffering from the effect of a hangover and a few things. Which How I was. How rationalize that? Uh, is he uh, this? Simply because he's just kind of a guy, or uh, well, I, I don't know. He he is rather. Yeah. It's, 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 he is rather. I can believe that he would say this sort of thing. 
Why? Because it would disturb the tenor of things? Possibly, yes. Bring he, he, he's one of these people, this is possibly how you can disturb, uh, describe it, is that he's one of these people that runs his school on the book. And if it's not in the book, you don't do it. And there's no UFO sightings in the book, how to handle that. So therefore you ignore them. Uh, this, is, this would be his type of thinking, I, I believe. He's just, it was his first year as a head last year, and everything was being done just so. And uh, we noticed this on several occasions, that he wasn't prepared to accept anything that, that didn't quite follow regulations. Uh, I think from his, his manner and in other things, you, you can explain uh, his attitude in this case. He's that type of person. Yeah. Well, then the Air Force came, and did he, did he reiterate these uh, uh, Not to the school, not to the school. He just told me that uh, uh, an Air Force officer had been out to the school, and I was teaching at the time, and he told me that he wasn't going to interrupt my class so that I could speak to them, and uh, promptly told them to get lost, I gather. I gather that they kind of had much time with him, because uh, I know I was very friendly with the senior master of the school, with the second in command. And uh, he said they were only in his office for very few minutes, and uh, Sam will be sort of come out fuming and uh, muttering, you know, what rot, what rot, and all the rest of it. I get it. He sort of told them that there was a lot of rot. Forget it. And this is I, this is all pure conjecture on my part. It's nice to have somebody telling the RAAF that it's a lot of nonsense and sending them packing. <laughs> That's a new variant of the thing, isn't it? They deserve it. <laughs> the victims of their own propaganda here yes. get along. Okay, well, is that the main outlines then of the... Uh, I think so. I don't think there's anything else. What are, you're presently teaching where? At Haylebury College. The Haylebury College. Uh, H A I L Y E Y B U R Y G U B U R Y R Y. What do you teach? Science. And what is your what uh, what town do you now live? What what where do you live now? Oh, 395 Waverley Road, A V E R L E Y, uh, Mount Waverley. Pardon? I just found it. Oh, what is that? Oh, what is the code? Three one four nine or something. I think is the postcode. Yeah. Never remember it. Phone number is two double seven three zero double one. Two double one seven three zero double one. What was it? Three one four nine. Mailing code. Yes. Oh. Is that about? We get the high spots on this. Yes. A lot of witnesses. Yeah, 300 yes, <laughs> yes, say. Yeah. Because a lot of them are, were uh, infused with the ideas of little green Martians running around, because they'd, they'd say anything. But there were a lot of the, the, the senior students there. What was the age? Uh, oh, well, it would be the whole school, which would be from uh, 11, 11 year olds up to 15 year olds, 15, some 16 year olds, I think. Three members of staff. I think there were only three. There may have been others, but if they were, they were also going to just shut up and not say anything. Yeah. I know there were, there were three at least. I think there's dusting the cover on the ones that I can think of. Was the one, of course, that amused me the most. Was the amused, which isn't the word, but intrigued me most was the. the 
Moorabbin Airport plane. One only has to sit beside Moorabbin Airport with the road that leads beside it and watch the, the planes coming in and out and then listen to their plane that there were no planes in the air. Have you ever gone personally to talk to them? No, I haven't. Uh, who was it that rang? I think Claude Miller. Claude rang them. So they were also contacted by... See, the Dandenong Journal took this up. Have you seen the yes, uh, reports? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the young person who took me out for that story, he was very interested and, and went out and saw them and saw all sorts, interviewed dozens of people from the street who lived there yeah. in that area. And found nobody who saw it. found nobody who saw it. Well, we thought so too. Although I must emphasise that it was this, I, you can, I think, believe this, in that it probably only was by chance the first person saw it, yeah. and then someone else pointed it out to them, and then we could all see it. But if it wasn't pointed out to you, it was hard to see. Uh, against the, it, it was just purely the effect of the sky. It was a, no figment of our imagination or anything. Yeah. We, could, we could see it, no doubt about it. And it, it looked real. It, it was no. Um, it was hard to explain what I mean by this, but it, it didn't look as though it was a reflection or anything like this. It looked real. Yeah. One had no ways of deciding that something is real. It's just whether we get the impression that it's real or not. Oh, very good. I appreciate your talk, wouldn't you? Well, I find it a fascinating topic, particularly in terms of the, the, the whole... You know, it, it would be fascinating anyway, but it's even more fascinating. Perhaps it's just my perverse nature, I think. But if people try and hide things, I want to find out more about them. So it's uh, yeah. a sort of, well, it must yeah, be just that, my perverse I nature. That, that, that is, I, I, I must confess that that doesn't particularly do anything but uh, annoy me in this case. Mm -hmm. I, I, maybe I've gone beyond the, the limits of, uh, of when I can be... Uh, uh, but that would seem too much, uh, too much, uh... Well, it's just the right feeling. You know, if someone wants to hide it, I don't know. Maybe I should kill the cat or something like that, but well, still, it's, uh, it's just a, a tremendously fascinating... Yeah, it's not really clear whether they're hiding and they're just so confused that they don't, they're making statements about it. Uh, Altogether, there's, there's mm. a lot of evidence, yes. a lot of evidence, but it's, uh, it's just but nobody knows, so they'll shut up anyway. Yeah, in case. yeah, mm. quite plain to say. Yeah, let's not get ourselves in if we don't know what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, just keep quiet until you have yeah. something to find. Doesn't do anybody anywhere still. Yeah. Okay, Andrew, thanks right. a lot for Uh, that's the end of the taped interview with uh, Andrew Greenwood, uh, Melbourne, Wednesday, June 28th, Now, folks, I hope that you enjoyed hearing those clips. And like I say, I always do my best to try and bring you the real clips, the real interviews, and everything else wherever I can so that you can be the judge. As I say, that's what this program is all about. Now, 55 years later, we still don't have a definitive answer to what happened. On the 50th anniversary of the inc incident, Studio 10 Australia interviewed three people who claimed to have witnessed it as children. They all stuck to their story. Interestingly, two of them maintained that they saw three UFOs in total, with the third saying that their recollection was that they only saw one. Canberra teacher and amateur investigator Shane Ryan 
As I said, I've talked about him. He's helped spearhead the search for answers in recent years, most prominently through his 2011 documentary, Westall 1966, A Suburban UFO Mystery. And no, folks, I haven't had the, the chance to watch that yet. The documentary has helped bring the case to a wider and even international public attention, and yet there have been no official government statements forthcoming. In the absence of official explanation, other hypotheses have emerged. Experimental aircraft and mass hysteria, combined with the mercurial nature of memory, are perhaps the most obvious. Indeed, it's perhaps the most plausible of all for those who are not convinced of otherworldly explanations. It certainly makes sense in light of the time period of the incident. Despite its distance from the USA and the USSR, Australia was not immune to the wider machinations of the Cold War. Assuming there were any official files on the topic, it's entirely possible that they were classified top secret for reasons of national interest, and still remain as such to this day. Then we have the experimental aircraft gone AWOL explanation. If the Westall craft was man-made, its shock appearance in full suburban daylight, then subsequent official denials, would show that relevant authorities are willing and able to keep secrets from their own populations, even about technologies many decades ahead of what they publicly avow commanding. The U.S. and Australian militaries have a long history of cooperation, especially since World War II and, of course, during the Cold War. This would be advantageous for both militaries. If you don't believe me, look up Pine Gap. There's another possibility that is arguably, arguably even more popular, weather balloons a favorite of UFO skeptics and serious investigators alike. It's an oft-touted explanation of UFOs. It's frequently correct, though in the case of Westall, I met with fierce opposition from witnesses of the event. Sorry, it's met. Obviously not from me. I haven't talked to any of them. The rebuttal is that the weather balloons do not typically move across the sky at the speeds mentioned, nor do they typically attract the attention of military planes. Did hundreds of students see a UFO that morning? Initial reports were that a few students and some teachers saw something unusual. As I said, the newspaper The Age reported that a weather balloon launched from Laverton two and a half hours before the sighting. It launched 32 kilometers west-northwest of Westall. Even Greenwood described what he saw as a round, silver object about the size of a car with a metal rod sticking up in the air. Furthermore, an RAAF navigator wrote a letter to the editor in the April 28th Dananong Journal. In his letter, he stated that Greenwood reported a reasonably accurate description of a nylon target drogue. A target drogue would appear like a windsock, towed by one plane for the others to chase. The RAAF did not use, did use drogues at their nearby base. Did the RAAF report a training exercise at this time? It did not state either way. Yet in an intriguing variation on the weather balloon explanation, UFO researcher Keith Basterfield suggested in, in 2014 that it may have been the result of a secret radiation testing project. Using freedom of information laws and existing documentation from the National Archives, Basterfield found evidence of the Highball Program, a joint U.S.-Australian project that ran from 1960 to 1969. During this span, large silver balloons were used to monitor radiation levels, largely due to the controversial nuclear tests that had taken place in Maralinga, South Australia, just a few years before. These balloons were equipped with a 180-kilogram payload of relevant testing equipment and were followed by light aircraft responsible for remotely triggering its parachute to descend. The documentation Basterfield uncovered suggests that one of these balloons 
may have been blown off course towards Clayton South after launching near Mildura. Such an explanation fits many aspects and explains the presence of both the police and the military at the school. A witness account prior to the Westall sighting stated a flying object, trailing what appeared to be a long vacuum-like hose, was seen by a couple, whose surname was Frankie, near Smith's Gully, 40 kilometers north of Clayton South. Highball balloons were filled with gas through a thin tube, which went to the top of the balloon and was left in place during the balloon flight, Mr. Basterfield said. Though with the launch documentation either missing or destroyed, Basterfield admitted he can't be entirely certain that the highball balloon is the culprit. Many others feel the final answer hasn't emerged just yet. It's still a very open-ended mystery. Until the Defense Department opens up their files and shares what they've got, we'll never know. Irrespective of what actually happened, the Westall UFO undeniably had a profound impact on the lives of those who witnessed it. Witnesses speak as feeling blessed by the experience. Numerous witnesses still regularly appear in the media to discuss the case. Shane Ryan continues to investigate, looking for the truth and acting as support for those who witnessed the UFO firsthand. In 2013, the Westall UFO received a public tribute in the form of Grange Reserve UFO Park, with play equipment designed to look like witness descriptions of the UFO and an accompanying barbecue area. It's an impressively unusual tribute to an undoubtedly strange event. So folks, what are we left with? Weather balloon? Secret aircraft? Overactive imaginations? Or something more? Much more. London's Telegraph newspaper rates this as the fifth greatest UFO mystery of all time. What did the students and their teachers see on that day? Was it a UFO, or simply a weather balloon or a drogue? The mystery continues. It's interesting to note that the five aircraft have never been explained. The RAAF denied any knowledge of these craft. Around one in five witnesses report seeing not only one, but three objects, two of which landed in the paddock west of the school, leaving their own circles, are unlike those of any plane, helicopter, swamp haze, or hot air balloon. They moved in ways which would require a form of propulsion we can scarcely imagine. Their appearance and behavior at Westall in April 1966 suggests forms of an applied science that beggar most contemporary understandings of what is technologically possible, even 55 years after the disputed facts. Easier than to shoot, scorn, or shun the messenger than accept a message that seems to bring with it so much riot for a wider sense of the way the world is. But so many of the witnesses were children, skeptics will jump in, as they have jumped in for 55 years since. Yes, but it can't be argued that children, having less Hollywood-shaped expectations about flying saucers than their older contemporaries, would have been in 1966 the best witnesses of such a case? From the mouths of babes, many of these children were, besides, in their teens, so they were hardly infants. There are no good reasons to question their reliability, certainly not in the numbers involved, and given the level of corroboration of so many different accounts. And not all the Westall 66 witnesses were schoolchildren. Alongside the teachers mentioned, others interviewed in the 55 years since include local market gardeners, Westall residents, and university students who in the following days came forth to investigate the scene. Each of these witnesses relate different but consistent perspectives of the event and its aftermath. But we have to be scientific, our skeptic insists, and the kind of claims Westall witnesses ask us to accept are deeply unscientific. All credit to this skeptic, but the view of science here is flawed. The adjective scientific describes less our presently best attested claims about the physical world 
than the most reliable proven methods our society has developed over the last 400 years for discovering new things about the physical world. Many times these scientific methods, duly followed and applied to new evidence, have yielded the kinds of revolutionary theoretical upsets we associate with the names of Newton or Einstein and before them Copernicus. Writing in his 1996 book The Oz Files, Australian UFO researcher Bill Chalker offered the best summation of the case yet produced. There is little doubt that something on an extraordinary nature was seen over the Westall School area, and that at least one of these objects appears to have landed and apparently left behind some physical traces. Numerous witnesses confirm these basic details. Other more exotic details vary in credibility, some seemingly complementing each other, and some apparently contradicting the generally accepted story of events. So, my friends, that is the story of the 1966 Westall UFO sighting in suburban Melbourne, Australia. I hope that you enjoyed it. It's always been a fascinating case to me from the first day that I heard about it. And I do hope, before I pass this mortal coil, that we do get an explanation. And something believable. Not just believe it because we told you so. As always, folks, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell. And that quote is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached. And I'll talk to you next week where we will be doing something about the state of Pennsylvania again and the unexplained and mysterious there. Take care, folks, and I'll talk to you soon.